0: This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stunovec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus
1: technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors.
0: Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can
1: download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com.
0: You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us
1: on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Every day there are many stories about the virus and vaccine rollout. Tim and I just, I felt like, brought you two disturbing ones about long haulers, uh, a study showing COVID can kill months after the infection, and then Brazil, how it's expanding out to younger people. The other thing, Tim, you and I have talked a lot about is what's going on in India.
0: Yeah, uh, the rising cases dramatically there, especially given that a year ago, this was a country that was in lockdown this is happening so quickly.
1: Yeah, it's really tough to kind of watch. Let's get an update though on COVID-19 and what we're seeing globally when it comes to the virus. Dr. Amish Adalja is an infectious disease physician, senior scholar at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security at the Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Dr. Adalja with us on the phone in Pittsburgh. Dr. Adalja, nice to have you back here with Tim and myself. How are you?
2: I'm good. How are you?
1: Doing okay. Doing okay. Although a little bummed out by some of these long hauler stories and also just looking at what's going on in India. Everybody keeps reminding us that unless we get this globally under control, we will not get beyond COVID. How do you see it?
2: I definitely think that's the case, that we have a worldwide pandemic and the world will still be disrupted. The world will not be safe until this virus is controlled in all the countries around the globe. And it's going to take some time probably well into 2022 so there really needs to be a shift in priorities as we get most of our population vaccinated to trying to tame this all over all over the globe and it's going to be you know one of the biggest public health challenges that we face because it is a really steep uphill battle in places like india and brazil and even europe and even canada
0: What's the right way to do that, though? Is it is it with the mRNA vaccines or is it is it really with these other vaccines, potentially the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, the AstraZeneca shot, ones that don't need to be stored in such cold conditions, one that don't necessarily need two shots?
2: It's all of the above. It's whatever you can do. So if you have places that can handle the storage requirements of the AstraZeneca and Pfizer vaccines, you can use those. In other places, you're going to need to use the Johnson and Johnson and AstraZeneca vaccines. And there are other vaccines as well that we have some data from that are, are developed in other countries, but it really has to be anything that you can get into people's arms. It has efficacy at preventing serious disease, hospitalization, and death needs to be what, what occurs. And there are mRNA vaccines that are in development that don't have those storage requirements. So, for example, there's a German company called CureVac that has an mRNA vaccine that doesn't require that cold temperature storage. That could also be an option. Remember, we've got Novavax in the wings as well. Uh, Their phase three data should be coming out. So there's likely to be multiple candidates. And I think we just basically have to to blanket the world with whatever they can get uh, in order to, to to stamp out this infection.
1: Well, I just wanna push that a little bit further. I was talking to somebody who's from India and was just talking about all the vaccines that they are developing specifically. We don't really hear about it because we're focusing so much, at least in the US and some of the vaccines that we directly have access to. But you know, ultimately, as you said, we're gonna need multiple tools. That's been kind of a story from day one on all of this. Or do you see in terms of getting it really under control globally that companies like Moderna, Pfizer, are really going to have to step up big time?
2: Moderna and Pfizer are, you know, their vaccines have been proven to be highly efficacious. They have manufacturing capacity. They've not had any major hiccups. I do think that they're going to be a component of how we vaccinate the world, whether or not they're the major component with AstraZeneca and and Johnson & Johnson and other vaccines, as well as Chinese vaccines, Russian vaccines, and other ones that we don't know about. It's likely to be a hodgepodge, but I do think that the vaccines that have the most proven track record tend to be the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. So those are obviously going to be ones that people will try to use if they have the ability to, to use them in those situations. But I don't think that AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson should be dismissed. I think those mm. are really great vaccines for, and and I would take those vaccines now. I think those vaccines should be used in the United States as well. But I, so I really think it's going to be a portfolio approach. And each country is going to have different requirements and different capacities to be able to to vaccinate.
1: when do you think J and J that shot could be approved again?
2: I, I, Friday I, I suspect then Friday the pause will be lift you'll see lifted. you'll see something similar to probably what the EMA did there'll be a warning label on it saying that there is the side effect risk of clots and that if you are at a higher risk for those clots, if you're in that, that age group that they saw this signal in have a discussion with your doctors. I suspect Friday. Um, And hopefully this will be something that we can resume at the same pace as before. I don't know if that's going to be the case because some polling does show vaccine hesitancy has increased with Johnson & Johnson. But it is important that now Johnson & Johnson has unpaused what's going on in Europe. They're going to continue the rollout in Europe, which is really important. Uh, And hopefully we'll see this vaccine return to kind of its place of prominence, I think, where it belongs.
0: Hey, Dr. Jaljo, in just the last minute that we have, and then we'll come back with you. I'm wondering about what happens if the virus goes uncontained in other parts of the world when the United States does get to so-called herd immunity. I know the worst case scenario is that variations develop, or variants develop, excuse me, that can penetrate vaccinations, but does anything indicate to you that that could be a, 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 a real possibility right now? Because these vaccines thus far have, have proven really resilient to these vari- variations, right, these variants.
2: Exactly. So I do think variants will continue to occur as the virus spreads from person to person. But I'm I'm confident that our vaccines will be able to stop what matters, serious disease, hospitalization and death, even when it comes to problematic variants. That's what we've seen so far. But but it will be challenging if the world is not if the world is still not containing this virus, because international travel, international trade, all of that is still going to be disrupted for some period of
0: time. Let's get right back to Dr. Amish Adalja, senior scholar and infectious disease physician at the Center for Health Security at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Health. He joins us on the phone from Pittsburgh. Dr. Adalja, I wanna talk with you again about messaging and what a difference a vaccine makes because we are getting mixed messages from different people about what is safe and what is not safe to do after you get completely vaccinated. Tell me what you do now that you've received both of your shots.
2: I'm basically as close to my normal life as, as I can be, and I tend to be a very risk-tolerant person, and I was taking calculated risks the entire pandemic, even before I was vaccinated. So I may be a bit of an aberration in my field, but I think it's important to remember that once you're fully vaccinated, the whole risk calculation that we've had to go through for so long is completely altered, because you are now basically protected from serious disease and hospitalization or death. You're also very unlikely to even develop symptomatic infection, and you're very unlikely to be a spreader of infection. So I do think that while the risk is not zero, it is very close to zero, and it is something to me that I find acceptable. And I think that's what we need to be telling people, that based on your risk tolerance, start to re-engage with the world. And that's going to move the needle, I think, on vaccine hesitancy, because there's many people who think that, you know, if the vaccine doesn't change anything, why am I going through all of And I think there's been a lot of underselling of this vaccine, and we're paying the consequences
0: for it. So what does that mean, though, for people who have kids? Because kids are still a group that that can't be vaccinated. And this is something I know I'm going through. My friends are going through. Okay, so we're vaccinated. They're vaccinated. But our kids aren't. So, you know, what's safe for, for what's safe behavior for us? Can we all get together? We don't know.
2: So there's a great article in the New York Times today by David Leonhardt that I was quoted and some other colleagues at Hopkins were quoted in that talked directly on this issue. So I recommend that. But in general, this is all going to depend on your risk tolerance. Children tend to be spared from the severe consequences of disease. Children tend not to be major spreaders of infection. So I think that you can be much more flexible with children. Remember what you did during flu season. What did you do with your children during flu season? Probably not that much different. But he gets a flu
0: shot every year.
2: right even with the flu see even with the flu shot the number of deaths that occur in children is you know in the hundreds every year from influenza mm. even with the ability of the vaccine so just remember just try to risk calibrate and i'm not trying to minimize what covid-19 is overall but in children influenza is a more dangerous illness than than covid-19 is and i think that's that's not the case in adults but and it's not the case overall but in children i think you have a lot more flexibility so i do think that you can as much as your risk tolerance uh, allows do this obviously if you have a child that's asthmatic that's a different story or a child that has special needs or medical problems or lung disease or is immunosuppressed you have to be much more careful but if you've got a healthy child that doesn't have those conditions i think you could be a lot more free uh with with how you interact once your family is vaccinated or even before because many children have been interacting throughout this pandemic remember we've had schools open we've had daycare centers open we've had little league sports and we haven't really seen major negative effects in children, nothing on the scale of, of what would worry me or what I think is an unacceptable risk but that differs from person to person.
1: So we have a great story in Bloomberg Businessweek magazine this week. It's the remarks, and it talks about how the, since the beginning of the pandemic, exactly when the U.S. might reach herd immunity for COVID-19 has been furiously debated in congressional hearings, kind of shorthand for the end of the pandemic. Dr. Adalja, is herd immunity truly kind of shorthand for the end of the pandemic. Is that the case? That if if we get to herd immunity, we could stop this virus or it's not so simple?
2: I don't think it's so simple. I think herd immunity is an important threshold to think about it, but it's not the holy grail. To me, we get to the end of the pandemic. We get to the end of the public health emergency when we no longer have to fear for hospital capacity concerns. When we've taken away the ability of the virus to cause serious disease, hospitalization, and death. and We're gonna get there long before we get to herd immunity, because for, for herd immunity, we have to think about vaccinating every person. And remember, this vaccine is only emergency approved for children or people about the age of 16. Right. So we don't even include children there. So that's going to be some time. What, what I think it needs to be dispelled is this notion that COVID-19 is going to go away, that it's not going to be anything anybody talks about three years from now. That's not the case. Remember, there are four other coronaviruses that cause 25% of our common colds. This coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, is going to establish itself and has established itself in the human population. It's already infected other animals. We can't eradicate it or eliminate it. What we're going to have to do is live with it, but live with it in a, in a tamer form because so many of our high-risk individuals will be vaccinated. But we're still going to have cases. We're still going to have disruption from it. We're still going to have to think about it. Mm. But it's not going to be something that's very different from many of the other respiratory viruses that we deal with on a day-in and day-out basis every year because the vaccine will have really just changed what this virus is capable
1: of. All right. Going to leave it on that note. Dr. Amish Adalja, thank you so much. Infectious disease physician, senior scholar at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security at the Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. President Biden, Tim, getting ready to mark his 100th day in office. That'll happen this coming week. And with that in mind, this week's cover story in Bloomberg Business Week Magazine takes really kind of a look back, reminding us of all the things that President Biden had to deal with when he took office. The health pandemic, a sagging economy, a reckoning with centuries of racial injustice and the existential threat of climate change. But it ain't over.
0: Yeah, now comes the hard part. Yeah. Nancy Cook is White House reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C. Uh, Nancy, I'm Really happy that we're getting to speak with you uh, about this cover story in the latest issue of Bloomberg Business Week. When you think about the first 100 days, um, how has Biden done? Like, how has he been able to do this?
3: I think most people would say that Biden has done a pretty good job. Um, You know, he has a majority of Americans support him in polling Uh, Democrats, even people who wish that Senator Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders had won the nomination They're really happy with him. Um, And he's even polling well with Republicans who feel like, you know, he's done a pretty good job handling COVID. And so what he walked into chiefly were, uh, you know, a pandemic and uh, low vaccination rates and schools closed and the economy really in a slump. And the first hundred days has really been about trying to solve those two crises. And they've done a lot of that by ramping up the vaccine uh, distribution, by getting more people vaccinated, and then passing this sweeping $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill, which gives money for things like testing and school reopening. And so, so much of the first 100 days have just been dealing with crisis, and now becomes the hard part <laughs> where he's really trying to do something to cement his legacy.
1: Right. Listen, he came into office. I mean, the whole pandemic, nobody had a playbook, but it did feel like they hit the ground running with a playbook in terms Terms of dealing, you know, with the vaccine rollout and dealing with economic stimulus uh, and a lot of things. What is the playbook for the next 100 days? What does it need to be? What do people say it needs to be?
3: Well, I think the playbook that they're trying to do is now that they have. I mean, they still have to deal with the pandemic, and there's still a lot of fallout from the economic downturn. So no one in the White House is discounting that. But what they're trying to do now is sort of reshape the economy and propose some big ideas that Democrats have long wanted to do. And so that includes everything from infrastructure to more money for child care and elder care. And that's this sweeping set of packages. President Biden's going to unveil this, this third one that he's talking about um, on Wednesday this coming Wednesday at the State of the Union and and those those, the most recent two packages the infrastructure and this upcoming families one you know that's more than three trillion dollars in spending that they are proposing they want to offset it with tax increases but again it's a huge amount of money and their goal is to really not just bring the economy back to where it was but also sort of try to make some tweaks to it and reshape it
0: So obviously, it's really ambitious. And the Biden administration and Democrats, well, the Biden administration, you know, is Biden's president. Democrats control the House and Senate, but barely. Uh, And there are some moderate Democrats who don't support these plans as they are right now. How does Biden sell this? And, and, And to what extent does it involve selling the plan to the American people in a way that President Obama didn't do when it came to Obamacare?
3: That's a great question. So the way that they sold the COVID ruby bill, which is the way they're gonna try to sell these two bills, was really to try to build public support outside of Washington. So what they have tried to do is define unity or bipartisanship, not really as democratic lawmakers and Republican lawmakers on Capitol Hill agreeing, but more to try to promote policies and, and put forward ideas that appeal to the majority of Americans. And so with the infrastructure package, for instance, you know, 70 percent of Republican voters are in favor of rebuilding roads and bridges, more job training, increasing broadband access. And those are the things that the Biden White House is going to keep focusing on. These plans that appeal to Democratic and Republican voters, not necessarily just lawmakers on Capitol Hill. That's really the political strategy. Is
1: it a smart strategy? Does it work? Will it work?
3: It works with the covid relief bill. It works very well. And, and I think that they feel like based on what they saw during the Obama administration and, and how much uh, Obama was tied up with trying to go with after Republicans and woo Republicans who didn't really wanna work with him, I think that the Biden administration learned some lessons and felt like they had to go another way. And it was a gamble, but it worked for the COVID relief bill. And I think they're gonna try the same thing with these next two packages.
0: So enter 2022, and that's when you know, the midterms are, And I'm wondering how the ambitious goals that the Biden administration has right now have to get done before 2022 and how that can change the, the landscape in Washington.
3: Well, really, they they feel like they, you know, that midterm elections, the party in power typically loses. And so I think the White House is very focused on the midterms and they feel like, you know, they have a window of time to try to get these major things done and they're going to go for it. And I think so much of the argument heading into the midterms for the Biden administration is going to be an economic one are you better off financially than you were two years ago you know are you making more money um, is the stock market in a good place or the kids schools reopening hmm. are there more people in the middle class and so it's really, it's interesting because it's uh, it's an area where Republicans have so dominated. Typically, Republican politicians get um, higher polling for their handling of the economy. But what we've seen in recent polling is Biden's getting very high marks for his handling of the economy. Mm. And so, so much of that political argument in 2022 is going to be around that.
1: Nancy, what about, though, taxes and higher corporate taxes or capital gains taxes, which obviously are skewed towards the wealthy and corporations, but I do wonder how that might impact you know, you need to pay for what he's trying to do. I get that, right? But I mean, I do wonder how that might impact something like the midterms ultimately.
3: Well, I think it—you know—depends what they can pass through Congress. Um, you know, that—that's. I, I feel like the Biden administration is thinking big and proposing what they want, and then what it passes through Congress is like a, a whole other reality check. But also raising taxes on corporations and wealthy people right now polls really well. I think that there's a feeling during the pandemic that wealthy people worked from home. You know, they held on to their houses. They, they sort of they, they managed to ride it and they were OK, whereas a lot of other frontline workers, you know, were put in dangerous positions, having to go to work or lost their jobs. And so the idea of po- like in polling, raising taxes on corporations and wealthy people is is overwhelmingly popular now. Yeah. And, and I think the Biden administration is trying to take advantage of that.
0: What's the key metric for us to keep an eye on when we're thinking about President Biden's eff- effectiveness as a leader? Right. I mean, public polling is important, certainly. Uh, but but what do you look for?
3: Well, I think that some of the key metrics when I talk to administration officials, like the things that they're watching are um, what does the unemployment rate look like in two years, mm. um, you know, does the GDP look like? Um, you know, these are what is when how soon does the country get back to full employment? When does the unemployment rate go, um, you know, down to the fours again? And I think that that is some those are some of the benchmarks that they're looking for in addition and to just trying to control the coronavirus.
0: Very briefly, what did Treasury Secretary Yellen tell you about that?
1: I think that she is closely watching the labor market.
0: Okay. Great.
1: She, she Yeah, that's what she likes to do. Nancy Cook, thank you so much. White House reporter at Bloomberg News.
4: I'm driving my car. i turn on the
3: radio.
0: How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive
2: you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive.
1: Just drive, baby. Just drive, baby. It's the
3: question
1: that drives us. Drive.
2: This is The Drive to the Close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
1: Yes indeed, just about 10 minutes, nine and a half to be exact, uh, left in today's trading session. Let's get to The Drive to the Close. Aaron Kennan is back with us, co-founder and chief executive officer at Clear Harbor Asset Management. $1 billion in assets under management. Uh, back with us on the phone in Stanford, Connecticut. Aaron, nice to have you here. A lot going on. Gotta ask you though first, not market-related, but hybrid working. How's it going? Because I still remember when you said, we pulled our people, closed our offices out of New York, we're going to kind of embrace hybrid and work that way. You still doing that? How's it going?
4: So we opened up our new headquarters in Stanford uh, back in in July, and we've been rotating um, in and out uh, ever since then, Carol. Yeah. Um, So we... We're, we're sort of normalizing now. I'm in every day and really look, look forward to seeing my colleagues in the office. We do wear masks when we're out of our individual offices, but uh, certainly feel as though the collaborative environment's adding
0: value. Uh, well, I got to cut right to the chase here and get to the big news today that Bloomberg, <laughs> that our Bloomberg colleagues broke. I uh, buried the lead. Yeah, it's okay. Uh, the president eyeing a capital gains tax as high as forty-three point four percent for the wealthy. As soon as that happened, stocks moved lower. Well, as soon as the news report came out, stocks moved lower on the news. Um, your initial reaction to this?
4: Right. Well, I, you know, I I think as a political calculus, it could make good sense for. You know, curring favor with the Democratic base. But hmm. if the goal is ultimately to increase tax revenue, I think it sort of fails miserably. Uh, it's sort of counterproductive in so many ways because the wealthy, uh, as they do even now, but I think they'll do to an even greater degree, will just allocate more of their earnings to non-for-profits, more of their earnings to donor-advised funds, um, I think they'll hold off on on making those those capital gain sales because of course the tax code allows for stepped up capital gains at, upon death. and so that basis just steps up after they're passing anyway. So it just doesn't seem to achieve the desired economical and I think it, it sort of prevents the fluidity of capital moving around the system as it should in a natural way. Uh, I think you could have uh, asset prices trading at at, at valuations that are, uh, sort of um, un unhealthy uh, and and uh, artificial in some nature because there's just sort of a a, a lack of an uh, ability or willingness to to make sales.
1: Well, and it's interesting too. You know, our Mike McKee talked earlier, uh, Aaron, and he made reference to 1994 when Clinton President Clinton then raised corporate gains uh, capital gains taxes too, and he said, you know, we went into a budget surplus. There are lots of things we need to look at when we're talking about this, but I mean, is there a time in history that you can look back and kind of get an idea of what might happen in terms of the equity markets as a result of a higher capital gains tax?
4: Well, I think, you know, you end up, it's sort of like the, the corporate tax rate, right? You know, if you if you start nudging that upward, too, um, you had your CEO of Chipotle on uh, just a little mm-hmm. while ago, and, and he didn't want to say it, but what I, what I think he wanted to say was, well, we'd have, we'd have to raise prices right and, mm-hmm. and so right if we're going to maintain our earnings we have to raise our prices so who has to pay more for a burrito it's the consumer so who's who's kidding who right so i think this is sort of the reality there's a lot of politics embedded in this i, I will um I, I i will admit that this is probably a first sort of shot uh, at at goal for for the biden administration That's, they know they're probably yeah. not going to settle settle at 43.4 percent at the high rate of capital gains but uh, but it just doesn't make great economic sense either.
0: But, you know, the Biden administration has some very ambitious plans for for the next two years and, and the next four years at ho- it, beyond, it hopes. Um, how how does it pay for those, right? It's already floated, uh, increasing the corporate tax rate. It's something that I asked Brian Nichol, she's CEO of Chipotle, about. But they're going to have to pay for it in other ways, too. And like you said, politically, this may be a, a way to do it.
4: Yeah, I just don't think the pie expands. And mm. I think that's the challenge here. I think the pie actually shrinks under this proposal. And so what you're asking is, how do we expand the pie? And I think, you know, a uh, stimulative uh, economic policies can can do that uh, on, on the edges. Uh, we are at a, in an environment where we've spent massive percentage of our GDP on fiscal stimulus. And that's certainly going to provide uh, growth, but not a sustainable sort of growth. I think the secular trend will, will rear its unfortunate head in perhaps 2023, 2024 and beyond. And then we'll have to contend with the massive deficits that we've built up over the last, not just 12 months, of course, but last many years. And and that, those headwinds to growth due to the deficits will be, you know, another point of concern for, for the economy and for earnings. But for now, we, we're seeing record earnings, record growth we think we'll probably see 10% GDP annualized GDP growth next quarter, right. which will probably be a peak for the cycle, um, and and Europe will probably start to accelerate their growth profile towards the back end of this year as the vaccine rollout uh, improves there. And I think that's the other story of the moment right now, frankly, which is it's not a synchronous growth story globally. You know, we walked into the beginning of this year and we thought, well all of the world will have this vaccine rollout at the same time, so we're going to see the synchronous growth. We're not. And I think that has positive ramifications for the inflation story, too. Hmm. That demand side is not occurring all at once globally. It's happening here, and it will roll into Europe and then South America and hopefully India
1: right. after
4: they can sort out their vaccine woes.
1: But unfortunate because it's it. we really do need to see the vaccine moving more aggressively around Absolutely. the world. Hey, Aaron, though, but so what is your take on... The infrastructure plan and the plan by the Biden administration, the president specifically, you know, about investing in America's future. We see China do it. I know these are two different, very, very two very different countries. But I do wonder, as an investor, do we at some point need to give companies a break, give a country a break to invest in the future? Whether it's rebuilding the semiconductor industry, whether it's rebuilding, you know, alternative energy or building alternative energy, you know. Should we not be providing support for that because that's kind of our future?
4: I, I do think there are some key um, – the transportation component of the infrastructure bill has a great deal of merit, right? We need, we need highway systems. We need bridges. We need Wi-Fi. Uh, we need 5G in this country. We need to be able to compete. But when, if we're going to compete, we also have to compete on a, a reasonably level playing ground as it, as it pertains to, to taxation and I guess that's where I sort of go back to, you know, that point. I, I, I think if, if if the Biden administration's objective is to bring back jobs to America, we need to be able to compete with the world to do that because not only is money fungible, but a lot of these goods and services are fungible too. And so I think taxation is a critical variable there. As it pertains to the decarbonization initiative, I think this is the future mm. in so many different ways in, in both the United States and around the world. And there are huge opportunities. Now I'm putting my investment cap on when I say this. There are huge opportunities and tailwinds that we believe you know one can uh, invest in over long periods of time, whether it's you know, wind and solar, or frankly, and this may sound counterintuitive, but the demand side on the, on the metals and mining uh, side of, of the docket, where copper demand is going to outstrip supply massively over the next several years, we think by 500 percent to 900 percent, based on many different research reports of, of late, uh, between now and 2030, and we just do not have the supply. Uh, online. It takes eight years to build a mine. To, right. to and, and, and what's important about copper, of course, is it's required to to build a wind turbine, to right. bring solar on board, and and to really decarbonize the entire, entire right. electrical grid.
1: Hey, we got to run. Always oh, good to check in with you. I uh, really appreciate it. Uh, Aaron Kennedy's co-founder, chief executive officer at Clear Harbor Asset Management.